Hey guys, Montel here, and welcome to this edition of Let's Be Blunt with Montel. My guest today was a successful commercial real estate agent and a mother when a medical diagnosis forever changed her life. In 1989, after suffering from symptoms that were first thought to be a brain tumor, she was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. She refused to let the diagnosis define her and set about to learn everything she could about the disease and the treatment options. She's the owner of Synchronicity Holistic, an elevated dispensary catering for senior women. Valentia Valentine, thank you so much for being a part of Let's Be Blunt with Montel today. Thank you, Montel. I have to tell you that it's emotional for me to sit here and look at you today. Oh, my goodness. My diagnosis was almost 30 years ago in October. And my mother used to call me and say, Montel's on TV. Honey, he drinks tea to get out of bed. And I said, Mother... I have seven children. Three of them I've sent to treatment. I'm not going to start smoking pot or drinking tea to help my MS. It brings well, to my eyes yeah. today because in, in 2016, I was at the Cannabis World Conference Montel, and you were there, and I have a picture of you because I called my paralegal at the time, and I have this darling picture of you in a pink shirt, and you said to us at that time, you suits better get together with these guys over here because if you don't collaborate, the market's not going to make it in California. You talked about your mother at that time and you wanted medicine. You talked about the lack of manual dexterity that we with MS have. And we're not talking about rolling a joint. We were talking about, I think at that time, Montel, you were referencing tinctures. And so I don't know if that's an avenue that you went into in the THC game or not, but I sat here with you today. And when I found that I was going to have the opportunity to speak to you and your listening audience, I was grateful that my mother had shared so much of your journey by watching your show and your struggles and how you changed your life. And so you inspired me when Stanford University sent me in 2010 to a pot shop. I had had four broken ribs and a torn rotator club. Uh, wait, let me, let me, wait, let me, hold on a second. Let me slow you down a little bit because you're jumping right in before we even know who you are. So let's back up and find out who is uh, Valentia Valentine. I mean, where are you from? I'm from Stockton, California. Okay. Um, and tell us about your life back in 1989 before you were diagnosed. Okay, so I was diagnosed in 1989. Prior to that, I was a single mom, got a divorce when I was 23. I had two little girls, an 18-month-old and a three-year-old on each hip, and went into the commercial real estate industry. I was one woman, 60 men. I learned it with Charles Tingey in Fresno. It was the most um, incredible experience I had ever uh had ever experienced because my dad was a developer and uh, I grew up with real estate and learning about real estate sales, but never the leasing end of it. So I had an opportunity at a very young age to become quote successful, whatever that looks like and means today. Uh, But I made a lot of money and was able to become a tenant rep. So I took care of the smaller tenant that uh, maybe needed protection from the landlord on signing five and 10 year leases. And so I went from small leases to national tenant representation. 
Great. And I mean, uh, so, but you were marching along smartly, part of the real estate industry, <clears throat> excuse me. And then you started experiencing some symptoms. What were some of your first symptoms so people understand their, your journey? Uh, paralysis on the right side of my face. I had what they call the facial group. Palsy? They thought it was palsy. Called a neurologist, couldn't get into a local neurologist, went to a uh, neurologist in Lodi who said that I've probably had MS by looking at the loss of vision in my left eye since I was probably eight or nine years old. It's interesting because it brought back memories of being a little girl and wearing some kind of steel arches in my shoes at that age. And I remember the doctor telling my mother when I was little, um, maybe she looked at an eclipse and that's why she lost the vision in her eye. Oh, so you, you had symptoms that went way back. Yes. Right? Yeah. Montel, uh, my mom had asthma. My grandfather had rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, I was an asthmatic child. I can look at, I had mononucleosis. I can look at the signs along the way. And I know now that if I have an autoimmune disorder that uh, attacks its own body and it didn't, the diagnosis didn't appear completely until I had my third child. So where I had. Yeah, very, very interesting, too, because when you were talking about some of the symptoms, again, in hindsight now, I bet a neurologist can look back and think that, you know, some of the things that you were describing are some of the things that they are now seeing, you know, in a lot of people who end up being diagnosed with MS, you know, either mono or some other form of, of, of viral infection, and then having that loss of vision in your eye when you were younger, uh, unexplained. Um, having issues with your feet unexplained, you know, then as we move forward and grow up, you know, and uh, you were very, very keen to point out the fact that sometimes MS doesn't manifest itself in women until after childbirth. And that's what happened with you, right? Yes. 17 years later, I was um, blessed with a daughter. Um, So I had two more children in my forties, one at 40, one at 42 the baby was just one. And I remember that uh, what we call neuropathy. I don't know about you, Montile, but I have horrible uh, pins and needles or burning. The adjectives are all different, but it's about the same feeling. That neuropathy in my feet up to my knees with my first daughter. And then two years later, the birth of my son, I lost the uh, feeling and the manual dexterity in my hands up to my elbows. And that's chronic. I've lived with that for over 26 years now, both my feet and my hands. And and doctors initially tried to diagnose you with what? Um, Bell's, a brain tumor. It wasn't until I had the MRI and a lumbar puncture that they confirmed that it was MS. Wow. And once you finally got that diagnosis, was there relief? I mean, how did you feel when you finally were told what was wrong, because I mean, for in some ways, I would bet that that was not a relief in the sense that, oh, I'm glad I have an ass, but a relief that at least they finally figured out what's wrong with me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Montel, to answer that question, I remember uh, my husband and I went to UCSF, and I remember he took me into the neurology clinic, and there were people in wheelchairs. And at that point, I had three inch pumps on. And I looked at my husband and I said, I can't do this. He said, you have a new baby. And yes, you can. And um, it was scary because there was not a book out there that could explain to me um, 
the symptoms that I was going through or um, what the relief would be. I can remember trying to walk down a mall and in Stockton, we had only an indoor mall. And I remember not being able to walk straight. And um, I refused that walking aid for many, many years until I realized by the time 2010, I had had four broken ribs and a torn rotator cuff that I from falls from falls two severe brain concussions from falls. That was the ego not allowing me to um, get the support that I needed, not only uh, physically as a crutch to be able to walk, to maintain the level of balance that I needed to maintain my busy lifestyle. Um, I went into remission uh, with both pregnancies, but shortly after the birth of both of them, uh, I think it's fatigue. I think that fatigue and emotional upset of running a house and my husband was building a major corporation at the times and it was a difficult time. And I will tell you that again, you just said some things that are, are um, consistent with some other women that I've spoken to because in some ways, especially remitting relapsing MS seems to in some, not all, but in some women remit the symptoms during pregnancy. And there's some, some science behind that. Part of that is, you know, um, uh, a protein that women produce in their bodies along with their baby that's called alpha fetoprotein that literally suppresses the woman's body from thinking of the baby as if it were, you know, a foreign object and attacking it. The baby not thinking that the mother is a foreign object and attacking her. So we produce, you produce, you and the baby produce a protein that's there for the entire time the baby's in utero and for about a month after baby born. That seems to, and there's been some scientific research done on it, seems to suppress the symptoms of MS. But then as soon as that alpha fetal protein isn't produced anymore, then your symptoms kind of come back, you know, with a vengeance, right? So after your birth of each child, you probably saw, you know, a pretty significant relapse, right? Yes. And you explained something that the doctors never did. So thank you for that. No, absolutely. There, there has been just you know, there's been some research that was done in Israel. Some research was done, I think, in Germany, um, looking to see if they could isolate the alpha fetal protein um, in placenta, so that that could be then replicated to use as a possible treatment. This jury has been still out on that because people don't understand. I think that it also suppresses other things that we don't want to have suppressed. So. There's work being done on it. I'm not trying to say to people who are listening in right now that that's going to be a future cure for MS, but there is some research underway trying to figure out whether or not that could impact MS. So you, were you put on medication initially, or was, did you get the same song and dance that a lot of MS sufferers get, and that was, I don't know what I can do for you kind of thing? Yeah. Uh, locally, I did not. Eventually, by the time I got to USSF, they uh, put me on a a, I think a pharmaceutical called Avonex at the time. And I had great right. skin, probably seven years with that medication. Yeah. You know, Avonex, Avonex was, well, I, I don't want to get in trouble with the pharmaceutical companies, but you know, um, back then when you were diagnosed, it was 89. I was diagnosed in 2000, but back then Avonex was one of only three drugs that was available. The ABC combination was Avonex, beta and Copaxone. And, um, you know, when you look back in time, and I think even doctors and most neurologists right now look back at 
those who were on Avonex, there doesn't seem to have been a lot of efficaciousness in that medication, though it was approved by the FDA and it still is out there, I think, available, but not being used as much. A lot of people had a lot of adverse effect from Avonex. Um, and um, so did you stay on it long or did you stay on it for a little while? Seven years. And seven years. Seven and during years. that seven-year period of time, you, and I'm not blaming it on the medication, but you didn't see your symptoms getting any better. Started declining. And Started that's declining. the year I was declining or I was diagnosed with being secondary progressive. Secondary progressive. And then after that, during that period of time, you were almost wheelchair bound or you were wheelchair bound, bound for a while, correct? My children were 10 and 13 and I was bedridden in 2010 and uh, had had a wheelchair. There was a nine month period. And that's 2010 when Stanford sent me to a pot shop in San Jose. And I shared my experience and fear of just say no. I'll be 68 this year. And so Nancy Reagan's campaign and that Friday, and I think Nick here, one of the other girls made reference to it, heavy propaganda for 70 years on the sure. negative aspects of ingesting cannabis. And yeah, and, and, and that must have thrown you a little bit when you found, because I'm sure that you've done your own research and understand that. Even during that period of time in 2010, the federal government had already issued itself a patent on cannabis and had talked about in its abstract in that cannabis, its primary effect on neurological disease. So the government knew at one side of its face, it's saying, oh, no, bad, bad, bad drug. But on the other side of its face, it's trying to patent what they possibly saw as something that was a neuroprotective. And so when you say that the Stanford, the doctor there sent you to a pot shop, I mean, how did that conversation go? Was that something they probably said the same thing to you that my doctors had said to me was, I'm not going to ever tell anybody that I told you this, but you might find some relief using cannabis. They say something stupid like that. Uh, you know, I have to tell you, uh, Jean Mi, who runs the uh, neurological clinic for uh, Stanford, um, I had lost eight pounds in one week. Everything had shut down. I wasn't able to walk. I wasn't able to eat. Uh, the intestines were pushing against the stomach. Uh, it was dire. I wasn't sure that that was the quality of life I wanted my children, my young teenage ch children to uh, be exposed to. And I remember she grabbed me. She said, get a grip. She said, this pain will pass. I'm going to send you to a doctor in Santa Cruz to get a recommendation. And I shared with her my fear of uh, having been raised with a brother who used cannabis, who had been in and out of juvenile hall um, the entirety of high school and his younger life, went on to other drugs. My brother went on to Quaaludes and acid and eventually heroin. So I was convinced. Which we are not going to say was a gateway by using cannabis to go that way, correct? I thought that it was, Montel. I was convinced. Right. But so, now looking back in hindsight, you know it wasn't. Correct. But that was my pushback. I can't. I've raised seven children. It wasn't until I had my first experience in San Jose, excuse me, it was Santa Cruz in a uh, cannabis dispensary that I um, saw people that uh, had a scarf on their head and I thought maybe they have cancer. And then someone had asked me um, when I was trying to make a selection for cannabis, there wasn't a bud tender in those days. In those days, it was pretty disheartening. Everybody was high. You could smell pot. Um, it wasn't the, the stoner culture that I was used to because that was my brother's life. And I had been judgmental until I was 
in the dispensary for maybe five minutes. And I realized that everybody there was self-medicating for something. Mine was physically apparent. A mental health issue is not. And that's when I had the opportunity to really look at what I've learned to be in the last 12 years, the most compassionate group of people that have been trying to make, that have been involved since 215, Prop 215, and all the success they've had with cannabis with our AIDS patients in Oakland and San Francisco. So I learned a lot. There was an opportunity for self-reflection of my judgments against my little brother who had never had a glass of wine. And I self-medicated with a glass of wine and we were just both self-medicating. I guess we all self-medicate, whether it be my husband grew a, you know, a billion dollar business and he died a compulsive overeater at 380 pounds. You know, I have my dad who was a drinker. I look at my family members and we all had something that we were self-medicating for with our anxiety, call it mood disorders or depression or whatever it could be. I just know that, um, that was that epiphany that was life-changing and that was 2010 and that's when my activism started and and when you said you had your first experience i mean at this point in time were you you were still in the wheelchair you were out of the wheelchair i was i was in and out of the wheelchair i had just gotten a walker so after i started cannabis i started treating the inflammation so my feet could get out of bed and i wanted to get out of bed and stand up it didn't hurt so much and so I slowly, with the use of cannabis, then I would have to drive to Santa Cruz. Access was not possible on the Monterey Peninsula. So I would drive three times a week up to Santa Cruz and they would make little suckers for me with only five milligrams because I was stoned. You know, here I had teenage kids and I was eating a cookie and out for hours. And um, my children were extremely optimistic. You know, they had at some point in high school already tried to self-medicate with cannabis. And um, they knew my judgment. They seen me break the glass bomb and say, you're not going to wind up like my brother. There was a lot of years of um, emotional upset in my family because of my brother. And so I wanted, I spent 20 years running alongside all my kids to make sure they didn't wind up like my brother. But it wasn't until the birth of my younger children and my own use that I started seeing myself um, getting stronger and stronger, not only physically Montel, but there was an emotional um, element to the cannabis that heightened my well-being. I felt happier. And I'm sure your kids saw that also, right? The fact that, you know, they were getting a mother back that they hadn't had for quite a while, right? Yes. And so, I mean, just, just so people understand, I mean, it gave you some relief because of its its anti-inflammatory capability and also its neuroprotective capability. But what, what were you noticing? Did some of your dexterity come back to your hands when you started realizing that cannabis was helping? Did pain in your feet kind of subsided? Some of the neuropathy probably subsided, the leg tremors and those kinds of things? Yes, I was able to go off back with him and so many of the medications that eventually the doctors did put me on after time as uh, an opportunity to try to remedy my symptoms, but nothing was working. Not one thing helped with the neuropathy until I found a one-to-one cannabis that uh, literally took it away. And then it became a dance of learning how to microdose the different products. And one thing that I know, we've come a long way, baby, since 2014 in cannabis. I mean, there were times I was buying a granola bar that was stapled in plastic and people didn't know what the strain was and they didn't know what the dose was. And 
you know, it was, uh, it was brutal. I was sick a lot of the time trying to ingest it and find out, um, where's my sweet spot? What do I need? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. Right. And in your case, you, you, I think you made a note that you've never really, you never smoked it. You've always ingested it, correct? I never have. I used, I've used tinctures and capsules and tablets because, um, the tinctures mucosally work within 20 minutes, but only last three and a half to four hours. And if you ingest a tablet or a capsule, um, or an edible, uh, it lasts seven to eight hours. If you've had a bad gummy and you've had a bad trip, you're terrified. We have people that come in every day saying, please don't get me high. I was slaying dragons and hallucinating all night. So we teach that too much THC will increase the heart rate and uh, because it's lowered the blood pressure. And so there's a teaching component that I find and I still find going in and out of dispensaries. And I went to Seattle. I went to Denver, Colorado. I went to Oregon. I went up and down California and eventually went to Israel. I met Dr. Mushama and um, there's a science behind it. We didn't know that in 2014, 2015. So all of a sudden. Well, the information was out there, unfortunately, but our business has done a really poor job um, of educating consumers. They've done a fairly decent job, I think, of B2B education, but we've done a really poor job in consumer education, but the information was available back in 2010. Matter of fact, I, or 2014, I remember I literally visited Israel back in 2010 and interviewed Dr. Mishulam on camera um, as I was traveling around the rest of the world looking at uh, some of the solutions and, and was surprised and shocked at how much information was there. The information was there about all of his discoveries with the endocannabinoid system. But, you know, what it took until three years ago, four years ago for mainstream medicine to finally start talking about the endocannabinoid system. You know, I back in 2002, 2001 was searching for CBD products and people would look me in the face like I was crazy. But the information was there. It's just been the fact that, you know, we were living and still living in a time when, you know, it's like the nowadays, if you talk to people, especially politicians, most of them will say, well, I'll support cannabis when there's more research done. And what a bunch of crap. Where in the last 10 years, there's been over 35,000 peer-reviewed, studied research documents published. In the last year alone, over 3,500 studied, research, peer-reviewed, published around the world showing the efficaciousness of cannabis and cannabinoids. And so, you know, I didn't mean to cut you off, but uh, I just want to make sure that people understand that it'll be five years from now, we'll still be in the same boat where people are saying that, you know, there's not a lot of information out there and there's more information out there on cannabis than there is on alcohol. There's more information out there right now on cannabis than there is on aspirin. 
And yet you can go to a grocery store, any child can go to a grocery store, pick up a bottle of aspirin, go home, take half a bottle and be dead on the kitchen floor and nobody cares. So, you know, it's, 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 it's astonishing, but I, I, I have to applaud you that you turned your personal advocacy into a business. Talk a little bit about that. Yes, I did. I became the voice on the Monterey Peninsula and the Central Coast to um, evoke enough attention to my disease state and the marvelous benefits that my own personal doctor and MDBIP doctor was seeing that he went and went to Stanford and became educated to write those recommendations. Because I'd been a philanthropist and I raised over $14.9 million for local nonprofits, specifically Make-A-Wish, um, people were taking notice. I would be attending different events and all of a sudden I went from the wheelchair to a walker for many, many years. And as the quality of the medicine seemed to increase and the information, like you said, 2010, 2014, I tried to open a dispensary in the city of Monterey and got turned down in 2010 and again, 2014. Went to the local board of supervisors and feel primarily responsible for helping evoke uh, the attention and the change that needed to be um, recognized that this is medicine. And so I went to all the articles in Israel and Spain and started educating the local board of supervisors between 2014 and 2016, which allowed- It's really, interesting. It's really interesting that it took you that much to really turn the tide in Monterey because I used to live in Monterey. As a matter of fact, I was stationed in Monterey uh, when I was attending the Defense Language Institute at Presidio. And um, I was there back in the early 80s and remember that, you know, Monterey, uh, there, there was cannabis available anywhere you wanted to find it in Monterey. Um, and, you know, Monterey was also kind of the home of some other, you know, holistic healing kind of things and centers, uh, you know, one of the first um, – I can't remember the name. Uh, one of the first places that I ever been to literally be in a, in a sensory deprivation tank was outside of Monterey um, in near Big Sur. And so Monterey was doing some cutting edge things during the 80s and the, the mid 90s. And I, I, I find it really hard to believe that it took them to 2010, 11 to embrace cannabis when it was really part of the social fabric of the city. Interesting. I don't know that side of it. Um, you came as a younger man. I came as an older woman. Um, Semi-retired because of my cannabis raising two young children. And so I don't know that side of it, but you're right. We have Eslin. We have a lot of spiritual sobriety, uh, health, alternative healthcare um, practitioners. And it should be abundant, but it was something that wasn't talked about until I hit the 11 o'clock news. And then I had judges and attorneys and doctors sending me flowers, applauding me for trying to blaze, blaze a trail that was long overdue. So obviously we had the artists and so many people in our community that were using and partaking in cannabis at different aspects of their life. But it wasn't until someone could maybe like myself, um, I was normal. I'd held a job, I had a beautiful home, I had the beautiful family. Um, the stigma that we've had with so many of the people in the um, cannabis business have been a little down on their luck. I, I had the same thoughts about my brother the first time I went into a dispensary. Well, they look a little bit like my brother, a little down on their luck. 
Well, Montel, very clearly, that's depression. You know, the lack of self-care. Sometimes I would watch my brother three days sit on the couch and be stoned and wondered why, you know, what, what was wrong? Well, now I know that he was self-medicating. So I think that for someone that looked, quote, normal and was successful in their life, I think I was able to shine some light on cannabis in a different way that nobody had seen before. And I was believable. They watched, they physically watched me get better, not continue my decline. I had an appointment mm. with uh, Stanford this last, maybe six months ago. And uh, she told me, you're the only one after 25 years, Valentia, that had a secondary uh, relapse remitting um, diagnosis that's gotten better. Right. I only attribute that to cannabis. Absolutely. Well, now let's talk a little bit more about your dispensary. It's called Synchronicity. Explain what's so unique about your dispensary and your concept. Well, let's see. Um, 2010, 2014, the vision and the, um, I felt compelled. I felt compelled. My last child just left for college. Um, Dominic being one of seven because I raised three stepchildren. I didn't know who I was going to nurture, and I started reaching out. I'm the first one on the Central Coast who received a mutual benefit nonprofit. So I was able to, at that point, it was a gray area. I was able to sell cannabis out of my home in Pebble Beach. So a lot of women started coming to me that had pain and sleep issues. You know, 2016, 17, let's say, I got my nonprofit in 2014. So 2014, 2015, most people came to me for pain and sleep. Since I've opened my doors at the end of 2018, it's anxiety, then um, sleep, and then probably pain number three. We have a mental health crisis right now, and we were able to open up with a pharmacist. We're the only California dispensary who has ever featured a pharmacist, RNs, and nurses. And I was very proud of the model. We had people that have flown in. We've probably seen over 15,000 people with different disease states that have heard about my story. But it's not just MS. Uh, we've spoken to Alzheimer's and Parkinson's and um, several other nonprofits. And so the public awareness has been heightened because of our work talking to assisted livings to explain to them that this is not daytime drinking. This is about wellness. This is not about getting high. And we have to give ourselves permission to talk about our sweet spot. How many MGs do we take during the day? And how much do we need to take at night? So when people come into the store, and like I said, we started out predominantly with seniors. But when they come in, we, we do a health intake. We find out what medication they're on. If you've got heart issues and you're on wafering, cannabis is going to lower your blood sugar, I mean, your blood pressure and increase your heart rate. So there are contraindications with THC that people aren't aware of. And we just try to heighten the awareness. We create a directive, can't prescribe it, but we create a directive based on um, our past experience. We work with them for, excuse me, it's allergies. We um, create a directive based on our patient's um, experience, my own personal experience. Try every product that I have in the store. And um, we let them know slow and low. You know, we start them at 2.5 and we try Tata or down according to what their needs are. Do you feel that, um, you know, the, the senior population in, in particular, 
is well informed about cannabis as a medical option? In our community, they are. But I think that they've just been part of the State California Coalition and they're demanding more retail be allowed. And as I address the coalition, in order to have more retail, you need to let your community know that you have something to offer that can help educate and help your patient community. I don't think we need another pot shop. I mean, I'm hearing they're going up every other corner in some of the communities that are allowing it. In our, and on our coast, on our central coast, Seaside's got five. None of them are doing well. Half of them have, have sold or have gone out of business. And so I think to have the concept of a wellness center where we can educate and work with a person and not worry about this one didn't work, let's take it back and let's give you something over a 72-hour period that does make you feel better and put you to sleep. And more importantly, at our age, Montel, keep us asleep. All right. Well, you know, it's really interesting because I've, I've, I've been saying this for years now. I think that, you know, the, the worst thing our industry does is educate. We really do a really poor job of that. Um, and in California, you know, um, from a, a municipality standpoint, you know, um, 80% of the California market is still now the illicit market because now you've gone so crazy with taxes and, and ridiculous, you know, over regulation in some ways that it's really made it very hard for dispensaries and businesses like yours to even function. How are you doing? Uh, we're starting our third year. It's been difficult. You know, the first year I received the bullying and the pushback from neighboring dispensaries that wanted to make sure that I didn't succeed. I'm the only woman in our industry on our coast that has a dispensary. I don't think there was more than one or two in the entire state at that time. So there was a little bit of a good old boys network. What are you doing here? You, you've made your money. And I said, if I could turn this into a nonprofit, I would. Um, I think the importance of being able to have a public outreach in your patient community is extremely important. I think that um, the acceptance that we've had is overwhelmingly um, positive and we see success every day. We text, we have five or six of us that are constant communication with the patient community and to receive a um, text at eight o'clock in the morning that says, I slept for the first time in 20 years. I can't help but get choked up. That's true altruism. Um, Montal, I don't take a dime out of my company. Every dime that I've made, I've put back in and I've invested very heavily in the Monterey Peninsula in terms of people that couldn't get finance for the Indus Grove, for example, or Harborside needed an investor. So I'm not only a retail storefront and a wellness center, but my roots are very deep in Monterey County. And what I know is that we're at near collapse, very much like the rest of the state. We have mergers and acquisitions and people are, are flipping, the smaller guys are flipping to the bigger guys because they can't make it. This recent coalition uh, is just try to stop the state from increasing cultivation by another 5%. They can't make it. I mean, we have suicide. What's, what's going on in, on our peninsula has been frightening. And during the coalition, I found out that we don't stand alone on the Central Coast. It's dire and we need some more support with the state. Um, the heavy regulation, like you said, I just hired another woman for $70,000 to try to help me just get through metric and fixing with the last three kids messed up at $20 an hour. The average time frame 
that a, quote, bud tender stays on the job is 90 to 120 days. I'm an owner in Green Flower Media, along with Max Simon. His dad was my neurologist at the Chopra Center, and he said it's 120 days. Why? They start at 15 an hour, and each one they get another dollar. And so they started with me at 20. They might be able to get 21 at the next shop. The turnover is so expensive financially. And so to be able to wade through the regulations, and I'm a businesswoman. I don't know how these poor people, Montel, have been able to sustain the emotional health that they've needed over the last five years. It's been brutal. I mean, I received accolade after accolade, not only receiving um, Architectural Digest, most um, beautiful luxurious dispensary in all of the United States. I was in the top 10, thanks to Megan Stone with High Road Dispensary. Um, I have a sister store, uh, Elevate, in your area that I'm hearing great things about that I said my friends down there. There's very few of us that have elevated the experience with education. And I believe that without education, it's just pot and we're shooting in the dark and we have people that come to us and say, I have that experience. I'm not a candidate. And as we explain, everybody's a candidate. We just have to go through the process of learning how our body um, responds to it. Our and everybody, everybody is individual. You're absolutely true. The, the, it's individual response. So not one size fits all, not one strain fits all, not one you know, uh, a dose fits all. It's literally uh, something that the individual has to go through. And over the course of your journey with cannabis, it will change. I mean, my mm -hmm. journey with cannabis started off, you know, kind of a one-to-one, -one, but then my journey turned to, to 75, 25, you know, I mean, 75%, 25%. Then it went back the other way, 25, 75%. Then it went to 95%. So, or 90 and 5% and then terpene. So, I mean, I think that as we continue to watch this industry grow, it's incumbent upon the providers to educate themselves as much as they can exactly. to ensure that they pass that information on to their possible consumers. And again, you know, because of like what's happening in California, the fact that your illicit market is so big compared to the legal market. And why? Because the regulations are so daunting that people can't get in. You know, hopefully in the next year or next two years, I think somebody will probably get a grip in California and say, you know, wait a minute, we are destroying an industry just by overregulating. Let's back up for a second and make sure we're using regulation for the right reason. And I think that's where, you know, a lot of municipalities are all jumping on the let's make as much money as we possibly can from taxes rather than trying to figure out how to provide a service. What do you look, what are you thinking about for the next year? This is 2022. I think everybody was so excited thinking that the current administration and the current attitudes were going to help push greater legalization forward. But in some ways we're seeing some of that rolled back, especially all over the country where you've got police officers deliberately stopping, you know, armored cars that they know are, are, trying to take cash from one dispensary and put it in the bank. They're stopping and taking the money and confiscating and claiming that they're adhering to some federal law. What do you think is, is the, the next year's, you know, I don't know, uh, what's going to happen in the next year when it comes to this industry? It's a good question. If you watch, say, California Coalition's tape that just went out, just became, I think, Berlin Stones, several people grabbed that segment. 
there is a heartbreaking testimonial from a social um, justice applicant in LA. And he shows a stack of documents. And he said, I don't know how to read half of this and get through it. Um, they're doing a disservice to people, giving those people um, those license without the backbone of their expertise to show them how to wade through the paperwork. I think A, that's gotta be number one. I think uh, state of California has got to open their doors and not treat us like criminals. I think that the industry is treated poorly. It's heartbreaking um, the way they treat me when I walk in there. And um, I think that we need more advocacy for all the California growers, manufacturers, vendors, retailers. I think that to continue to overtax likes being done in California. Um, I don't think that the governor kept up with his promises. He or Fiona Ma promised me banking five years ago and I still don't have it. I just got it after 100, another 120 day bout with cash. It's exhausting, absolutely exhausting. So for the emotional health of the people in our community, I believe that the taxes are gonna have to be compromised. We're gonna have to maybe stop the excise tax for a year or two to let people be able to get back upon their feet. I think that the medical community needs to get involved. I think education is paramount. CanMed's coming up in May. Um, we have three of our local doctors that we've encouraged to sign up and they need to learn because I think that the, the patient community is going to demand Montel, that their doctors know more. Because if I'm the only one that's had a pharmacist, like you said, it's about money. And um, unfortunately the patient community is going to tell their doctors, we need to learn more and I and I it's my hope that not only with reduced taxes but with uh, medical uh, doctors or DOs health practitioners that are interested in plant-based medicine and we're seeing a lot of them aren't we come out of the woodwork you know I guess that's probably my cross to bear I'm angry that we've got MDMA and psilocybin and everything's being legalized because the pharmaceutical companies are going to be able to stamp it and cannabis again is still being ignored so I think that unfortunately, we're not going to get banking this year. I don't think that we even will be decriminalized till the end of 2023. So I think we still got a really hard year, year and a half ahead of us. Yeah, I was going to ask you what you felt about, you know, the entire psychedelic world that is blossoming in California. You've got ketamine centers opening up all over the place. And, you know, it seems like they just kind of reared their ugly head about a year and a half ago. And all of a sudden they got more legalization than cannabis does and um, seems to be much more accepted whereas cannabis has been around for well so as as psychedelics been around for 5,000 years however you know the movement for cannabis has been around consistently and then all of a sudden here comes you know psychedelics and boom everybody says that's okay I don't get it well, what do you what do you think about that especially since California seems to be leading the way with psychedelics nation nationwide well, I'm, I'm angry about it. And I'll tell you, I put $25,000 towards hospice this last year uh, for a, a palliative care um, study and end of life. And I put that money in there so I could learn more about it. I'm, I'm convinced that the reason why this is going to continue to blossom is that the pharmaceutical companies is going to be able to endorse it. And that makes me angry. And I had no experience in MDMA or um, psychosomatic, any of those, right? I, I've mm -hmm. never, I've never participated in it. You know, I have a hard time just being too high. You know, I like being chill. 
Um, but I don't like the feeling of being high because then it increases my anxiety, which wow. I have. And um, I'm very open about why I self-medicate with a uh, either a drink, a little canned drink or a little mint that will last four hours um, is to treat my anxiety. But at the same time, I'm treating my neuropathy and the spasticity that impairs my walking ability and my gait. Got it. So, I mean, now, if you if you could crystal ball, when do you think that uh, some of this legislative things will change and, you know, we start to see, you know, a more favorable view of cannabis, especially in a state like California that's been kind of like trying to lead the way? Seems like for every step forward, you guys have about two or three steps backwards. So when do you think that some of this may just be more step forwards and not as many step backwards? Yeah, you're right. I think that California has become the state of what not to do. I think that because we had an unregulated uh, market since 1996 with the Compassionate Care Act of 215, I believe that it just allowed the illicit market to continue to blossom unregulated. And I think that now that these people have stepped up, paid the money, tried to make it work. And I think that we've got the, a huge gray market as a result of that. A lot of people are going backwards. Um, some people are selling out the front, their product, but they're also selling out the back in the illicit market to be able to pay for the expenses for their licensed company. I mean, that's that's gotta change. And the only way that we're gonna be able to do that is to see taxes reduced. And I don't see before the late 2023, I don't see progress in the cannabis market unless the state of California steps up and helps us. Gotcha. And what are you, and you're, you are, what, what organization are you, did you say you were part of right now? Oh, Save California was a coalition that has just been spearheaded by Steve. Uh, he owns Flow Canna and he represented probably 80 different growers, manufacturers, vendors um, to push back against the state for this additional increase on cultivate, cultivation that was supposed to occur this month. So we don't know the end of that story yet. Okay. Well, uh, Valencia, I, I got to say thank you so much for being a part of the show today. Um, you know, you have a home here whenever you want. And um, we love the fact that you are doing as much as you are, especially for the you know senior population and, and getting information out there. If people wanted to reach out to you with questions or wanted to get more information about what you're doing, where do they go? Well, they can go to our website, Synchronicity Holistic. I'm located in Carmel by the Sea. Synchronicityholistic.com? Yes. Absolutely. Okay. And and people coming to the state, if they, again, since you do have a adult use program in California, right? So they could come by your dispensary and get Six, educated and pick up some product? 65% Montel of my population is tourism. So gratefully, we've done a great job and we are Googled often, often, and we have a population that continues to grow now that the pande pandemic is behind us. Um, it's been a tough two years. Opening it's going to continue to grow because, you know, we love, we just stepped away from one pandemic, but I think you mentioned it, but we're entering the pandemic of mental health issues right. and uh, depression, anxiety in such a way that this country has never seen before. So I have a feeling that you're going to start to see more growth just because of that. I agree with you. Okay. Well, I want to thank you so much for being a part of today's uh, Let's Be Blunt. And again, one more time, the name of your dispensary? Synchronicity Holistic.
Synchronicity, Holistic, and Monterey on the peninsula. So if you're ever in the Monterey area, make sure you drop by. And Valencia, are you in the, the dispensaries? Do you go there from time I'm to time? People days, to talk to you? Four, I'm there four days a week, and we're located in Carmel. Okay. All right. Great. Well, again, like I said, you have a home here whenever you want, so we'd love to have you back. I want you to take care of yourself, stay well, stay focused, and uh, remember uh, for you that, you know, it's all about knowledge. And you got to trust the dispensary that you go to. I think that Valencia Valentine has a paradigm that you can trust. So drop in and see her and see her staff when you're in town. Okay. And make sure you join us on the next Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Thanks for joining me on Let's Be Blunt with Montel. Please make sure you're subscribed and hit the bell to be notified when new episodes post each week. We'd love to hear your feedback also, so please send us your comments. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.